Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This week, we interview first-time author and Tufts University professor Kerry Greenwich. Greenwich's book, Black Radical, The Life and Times of William Monroe Trotter, was published by Norton Liverite in November 2019. And it's a fascinating examination of an African-American activist and Black newspaper pioneer. So William Monroe Trotter was editor of a newspaper called The Guardian, published in Boston. He founded it in 1901. He published it until he died in 1934. And then the newspaper continued after his death and merged into what is now the Bay State Banner, uh, one of the leading and longest running Black newspapers in the city of Boston and in New England. Mm. And one of the things I argue in the book is that it was really this vehicle for Black radical politics at a time when those politics were being shunned by mainstream Black activists like Booker T. Washington, but also to some extent by someone like Du Bois, who we forget starred kind of as a moderate politically and then veered toward the left as he aged. And so Trotter was somebody who was a radical in the most traditional of senses. Um, He was the son of a Union Army veteran who was born and enslaved in Mississippi. His mother was a free African-American woman from Virginia whose family was instrumental in the Underground Railroad. And they married and moved to Boston after the Civil War, where Trotter's father, James Trotter, became uh, the head of the post office at a time when Black men being federally appointed was sort of this big movement at the end of the Civil War. And so Trotter grew up the uh, son of this generation that emerges after the Civil War. So this is the 1860s, 1870s, height of uh, radical reconstruction, height of violence and response to that radical reconstruction. So Trotter was raised amongst people who were radical during their own time. So many veterans of the abolitionist movement, black abolitionists. He attended Harvard University, graduated in 1895. His family was considered part of the black elite. And after he left Harvard, Trotter found that he could not find a job anywhere. So at the time, Harvard graduated in ranks. He graduated third in his class. Hmm. And if you were ranked, you automatically got certain jobs in Boston and in New England if you got and he couldn't get them because he was black. And so this was a moment in his life where he really became convinced of the need for a return to radical abolition. And he really began to believe that the newspaper was the way to do that at a moment when Black people were becoming more literate than ever before. The newspaper was really the mode of communication for Black communities across the country and the diaspora. So, And he managed to turn The Guardian into what I would argue is this vehicle for Black community mobilization at the turn of the 20th century. Now, before you go on about the uh, newspaper, exactly when was it formed? 1901. Okay, so even before the NAACP existed. Yes. And we tend to think of that era as beginning and ending like with the NAACP. And one of the things that Trotter did was to mobilize a consciousness within Black people that had already existed, but that often was shunned 
definitely the white press, but definitely by many black gatekeepers. So this whole Mm -hmm. notion that the rise of lynchings and the fact that that was still seen as being blamed on black people themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you had somebody like an Ida B. Wells, again, another newspaper woman who would argue, no, no, no. Right. Lynching is direct result of black success and black achievement and it's white reaction to it. And so Trotter was in that tradition of of really saying that the newspaper was a way to tap into and mobilize a black community that was very politicized, but didn't have a way to express that um, on a national or local stage. Now, the detail in your book is just wonderful. I think I mentioned to you earlier that I really loved your writing. The writing is evocative and it really draws you in. But the other thing that is interesting about the book is that you can feel the amount of research and the detail that you went into. So for instance, you talk about um, Trotter's childhood and the whole idea of him playing piano and his father's reaction to that. How did those kind of details, how did you find that? (laughs) A lot of research, and thank you so much. Um, I really wanted to get into, as much as I could, capturing how it was that people of the time saw their time. And so it was a lot of culling through letters. It was frustrating to say the least because Trotter did not keep like a diary as far as I can find it. Did he leave papers? He left a lot of correspondence with other people. Um, So his papers are at Boston University. And within those are letters between his parents, uh, between his father and his sister. One of the things I point out in in the book is that his sister Maude was really, really close to their father. Um, William Monroe Trotter had sort of this contentious relationship. And I got all of that through this correspondence between the father and the daughter, the father and the mother, the father and Trotter himself. Then the recollections of his sisters. So he had two younger sisters, both of whom lived um, much longer than he did, and both of whom were very good at keeping tidbits about their lives and recording those down in letters, in notes. And we are talking about an era where letter writing was one major form of communication between people. But it's one thing to write a letter. It's another thing to write it and save it. And so that now, 50 years later, 60 years later, you can go to those letters and actually read them. So who was the person who said, we need to save this or put it in the archive or what? His sister Maude was really the one who curated much of his life, as did his wife. His wife's uh, name was Geraldine Louise Pindell. She came from another prominent Black family in New England. And the two of them together before his wife's death kept a lot of the papers. I found a reference to the fact that both of his sisters kept just stacks of letters, everything that he ever wrote on or about, they kept. And then when they died, they left it to this archive. And the archive itself can seem very messy when you go into it because it's not very well, um, at least when I was in there, it wasn't very well organized. And I think that's just a matter of like the curation of it. But there's letters and stories about him that his sisters kept, you know, down to all of their notes doing fundraisers for The Guardian. And then they'd write in the margin. So it was really a matter of really sitting with what the archive was beyond what the library told you was in the archive, right? And really going through everything. Right. Now, did he write his own autobiography? No. And it's, it's so interesting to me. The closest he came was that he would write about his father as if he wasn't related to his father. So it was kind of weird reading it. So it would say James Monroe Trotter did this, James Monroe Trotter did that. Mm-hmm. And so he wrote a lot about his father's family, didn't write as much about himself, 
and didn't write as much of what I could find sort of records of like a diary of himself. Are there other books on William Monroe Trotter? So the only other book about him was written by someone named Stephen R. Fox. It was published in 1970. And that's really the the original biography that was written about him, which was um, I read actually when I was in high school and then in college because I was so into Trotter and wanted to figure out his life story. And the good part about that book was that it directed me to archives. So I went in and, and that book has really good bibliography. And as I say in my introduction, it was written at an earlier time. So a lot of the things that we would now know as historians and as scholars, Stephen Fox didn't have at his disposal. So it was really an attempt, this book, to really expand upon that and really connect Trotter to his times and to his community. Yeah, because that, that's always a question when you have more than one book on a subject. What do you add to the universe in terms of the study of this person's life? Yeah. Um, would you say that there was something extraordinary that you found out uh, that didn't exist in, say, the first biography and that you were able to include in yours? I think the biggest thing was the family history. So there was a lot of conjecture about where his parents came from. And so I was really able to go back into the archive and find out that James Trotter, for instance, was born in this area of Vicksburg, Mississippi, where he was born, the town no longer exists <laughs> because the, it was right on a river and it was a plantation and the, the river actually changed course, which mm-hmm. happened a lot in Mississippi interbellum period. When previous historians have tried to do research on that side of the family, they'd often come up with, oh, we don't know where he came from. And it was really just getting into, well, what was the land like? Finding out that Trotter Sr. had two sisters both of whom really divorced themselves really from the family. So Trotter Jr. grew up with kind of these these very um, fantastical visions of his family history. But then if you actually trace it, you realize kind of the the tragedy of enslavement that he wasn't necessarily told as as a young child. So there was that that I got. His mother's side of the family were very much involved in the Underground Railroad, as we would call it now, in Virginia and into Ohio. And were really, really involved in fugitive slave rescues and actually kept in their family the musket that was used to make those trips between Ohio and Virginia. And so Trotter Jr. grew up with that above the mantelpiece, right? Then being told that this is the gun that we use to protect ourselves from slave catchers. So a bunch of that type of stuff I really wanted to capture. I also was very, very struck by how ubiquitous Trotter was within the Caribbean radical community, both in Boston and in Harlem. And the fact that he kind of had this second rebirth in kind of the 19 teens, where Trotter was seen as an idol for people like Hubert Harrison, you know, a Caribbean migrant um, and a socialist in Harlem. He was really seen as an idol for someone like Marcus Garvey when Garvey first came in. Of course, then they had a falling out. Uh, Cyril Briggs, who was another Black Marxist. So he had this effect on a generation of younger activists that I didn't expect to find when I started to do the research and that he was revered by working class Black people across the diaspora who really saw him as this example of protest and militancy. Well, now, before we get into his role as a newspaper man and uh, a leader in that vein, 
Uh, again, the writing, your writing is just evocative. Um, you really do have a wonderful sense of place. I mean, you can see the streets that he walked down in Boston, uh, what his home looked like when he and his wife had to move from one place to another. So how were you able to present that kind of rich picture of the spaces and the places that Trotter <laughs> occupied? <laughs> I really, I looked at a lot of photographs of when I could find them. I tried to walk the places where I knew he walked through Boston. I was very interested in maps. So I have about maybe a hundred maps of <laughs> on the na different neighborhoods and how they changed over time. It's a period of rapid development in Boston and really in a lot of Northern cities at the time. So where he first lived in Hyde Park, for instance, was like a country town. And then by the time he was an adult, Hyde Park was annexed to Boston and it was like a city, a neighborhood in Boston. So what would that have looked like for him? I really wanted to get into the fact that he rode the trolleys everywhere and he walked everywhere because he really liked to talk to people in the street. So I looked a lot at newspaper accounts of just what neighborhoods looked like, mm. personal accounts. I read a lot of just people who didn't have anything to do with Trotter politically, the way they described the streets and the neighborhoods. And then really looking at when I could find it, personal family histories that would talk a lot about Boston. Uh, the Black Women's Oral History Project out of Radcliffe is a lifesaver for people who are doing research because they interviewed these women in the 70s, 80s, many of whom were in their 80s, and they would describe cities in a lot of detail. And so using a lot of their renderings to, to really capture what the city and what the place looked like. Okay, makes sense. But it really works. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. Now, in terms of the newspaper, was he influenced by any of the other Black papers that existed in that time? Um, because at that point, I guess the Chicago Defender didn't exist then, right? No, the Chicago Defender came out later, so 1906. Right. And then the Pittsburgh Courier was when? 1905? Uh, yep. So my question is, how difficult was it for him to create and sustain The Guardian? And then why don't we know more about The Guardian today? So when Trotter started The Guardian, Trotter inherited quite a bit of money from his father's estate. And Trotter also, because he could not find a job um, in Boston with his Harvard degree, opened his own real estate broker business. And so was doing pretty well financially. And so when the paper first began, Trotter was able to put a lot of his own money into the paper to make it survive. And because he could do that, it gave him a lot of freedom to openly criticize people who would turn around and try to sue him for libel or who would try to uh, ruin the paper's chances of being sold. Trotter had a good financial cushion initially to keep that up. Of course, as the years went on, that ended because he put all his money into the paper and ran out of ran out of money. And the paper, as I as I put out in the book, day to day was really run by his sisters and his wife. They were the ones who did all the keeping of the books and making sure that people paid their subscriptions and making sure the different fonts that were used so that they could save money, all this type of things. In terms of why The Guardian might not be well known, more well-known, um, I think there's twofold. The first is that Trotter made a lot of enemies um, during his time period, as I go in the book. He did. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and was very controversial in the way he treated fellow newspaper men and women. He was very adamant that the press, the Black press especially, should be the voice of Black working people and should not reflect the interests of Black business interests or Black politicians, right? 
um, which was really kind of a, a radical idea at the time. Most black newspapers were funded by businesses or by political candidates. And so Trotter really broke the mold in that he said, no, we should have an independent black press that is run by black editors and then purchased by black people and sold in black communities. So in that way, he was really monumental. But the other reason I think he's not known is that the Guardian itself was very, very political and it didn't have a lot of the, the other stuff that other newspapers of the time had. For instance, the Pittsburgh Courier having wonderful cartoons that were done by black cartoonists. Right. Um, the Chicago Defender, for instance, having serialized novels that were published in there. Trotter right. really didn't do that. Um, I would say to his detriment as time went on. Um, but one of the beauties of that was that he really made it about the political pulse of the community in a very direct way. So it was all about, you know, this law that's being passed in New Jersey that black people should fight against or the, you know, how a railroad being constructed in Cincinnati was going to have long term effects on the black community. Right. And that over a long period of time can often be laborious, definitely to read. I can imagine that by the time you get to the 19 teens and 1920s, many members of the audience wanted more than just straight up political paper. They wanted, you know, uh, stories and they wanted like love letters and all the things that we think of as now. And Trotter really, it was straight up politics and uh, political debate and activism. Um, so I think that's one of the things. And then the third thing, reason I think is because it's very hard to find. So the Guardian newspaper is now um, at the Boston Public Library at the Congregational Library in Boston and at Fisk University. And then trying to get other issues of it, you really have to dig and find references in other collections. So it's really hard to like get like a microfiche or digital thing of just the Guardian straight. Okay. Did the Guardian also like, say, the Pittsburgh Curry and definitely the Chicago Defender also push the whole idea of getting Black people to move from the South to the North or to the West for better education opportunities as well as um, employment. Did the Guardian also push that whole idea? Yes, and so the Guardian was very much one of the pioneers of that. So as early as 1902, Mm. Trotter was calling upon, um, helped put money behind a real estate firm that was black owned that would have moved black people to the Western part of New England uh, and basically called for black people to move there because of course in New England, black people could still vote. Um, And so he's very much involved in that. And so while he would argue that black people should have the right to move and to better their condition and find a different place to live, he was also very big on the fact that black people in the South deserve to have their voices heard. Like he was very big on the fact that black people in the South were much more politically savvy than even northerners would give them credit for right um and so while he would argue that well he did argue that black people should escape from the segregation and lynching and lack of educational opportunities in the south he also believed that black people should be able to fight for those things in the south where they were he also believed american empire and american racism would eventually infiltrate everything and so would black people be able to escape it for long he he would he would say no all right Without giving it away, your opening is really compelling because it gets you into a short kind of summary of this man's life and also the tragedy of his death. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you about that because here you open this book and you're reading about a man you may or may not know much about. 
And you you take us through a short chronology, but it's not a chronology. It's mm -hmm. a, a nonlinear approach to, let me tell you this story about this man. What, what, how did you arrive at that approach to getting us really into the book, starting the book that way, and then, you know, proceeding on a more um, traditional basis? One of the things I wanted to explore with the book, in addition to the politics and, uh, you know, Black um, life at that time, was how being a dedicated activist can often wear on a person. And I don't even think we, we, and I mean, me included, <laughs> um, often recognize that, that somebody who's really an activist and in it for the long haul, how much that can change their life trajectory, how much it can lead to depression and just feelings of, you know, that you're, you're taking one step forward and like three steps back. Um, and so I really wanted to capture that, particularly since I saw a lot of that in Trotter's later life when he would write to people and that he was still optimistic, but he was also very much, I fought for desegregation in 1903 and we're having the same argument in 1923, right? And so I really wanted to capture that aspect of him. I also really wanted to get into the weeds of what I know was a controversy amongst people of my grandparents' generation. This notion that Trotter somehow died as a result of some covert action by the state. And I really wanted to get into the fact that there was no evidence of that, but that didn't mean that Trotter wasn't seen as problematic for the state and for white supremacists, right? And so I really wanted to get in the fact that he was considered this radical person. He was followed by the FBI, what was then the FBI in the, in the 1920s for his actions. But the end of his life really was a moment where he was despairing of the trajectory of freedom and black liberation at the time. Um, at the height of the Great Depression, um, when the New Deal was just starting. So, you know, he didn't know that there was gonna be any relief happening for kind of this very monumental moment in American life, but in particularly black life, right? You know, one out of every two black businesses just imploding. Mm -hmm. And him seeing this, his long-term friends um, by the end of the 1920s, um, dying themselves, uh, pretty sort of dramatic deaths. And so by the time he gets to the 30s, really despairing at that moment. And so I really wanted to capture, well, what does that look like? Uh, what would say, if you had to look at one challenge of writing about a man who had died many years before you came on the planet, yes. and in terms of getting inside of his head and understanding how he thought and how he lived his life outside of the, the newspaper business, what was a maybe one major challenge in, in terms of those kinds of, of elements? One major challenge, I would say, was really peeling back his relationships with the women in his life in a way that accounted for the fact that he was a misogynist <laughs> and not apologize for, for that, but recognize that even in his time, people recognize that about him. And yet he managed to, because of what he was saying about Black people and voting and a radical perspective on Black liberation, he managed to have the respect of many Black women. Ida B. Wells, for instance, was a big fan of Trotter's. Um, Madam C.J. Walker, big fan of, of his. But they um, didn't have to work with him. They didn't have to work with him, right? So it's so you have to get into that, like that. that yeah. You know, they they didn't have to kind of work directly with him, but they admired him, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that was really hard to get at without seeming like you're dismissing that aspect of him as a person. 
and also then finding the historical evidence to kind of say what you want to say about that. So, so I think that was probably the hardest thing of trying to capture those types of um, relationships. And then given his um, misogyny, uh, you got into this biography because you were fascinated by him. But do you have to like your subject <laughs> as you're writing about or as you find out more information about the person you're writing about and you're like, oh, the, he or she is not who I thought they would be. And how do you deal with that? I always say it's so funny because I always say, you know, Trotter is somebody who if he were alive, I would like from a distance. I would probably not want to have like a dinner with him or a glass of wine with him. He didn't drink, but you know, or have a glass of wine with him. I wouldn't want to be that close, but I would definitely still admire him for his gift of really being unrelenting and saying black people are human beings who deserve these rights and this is how we get them. So I don't think you have to like your subject. I think you have to find them fascinating and interesting. And I think he's endlessly fascinating and interesting because there's so many moments in his life where I would say, oh, when I was doing the research, like, why did you make this decision? But then long term saying, like, well, of course you made that decision because this you're coming from a place where it's either your vision of black liberation or it's nothing else. And that is actually a very admirable political position, but not a very sustainable one for just hanging around a person every day. <laughs> right. Well, this is your first biography, right? Mm -hmm. Do you have any recommendations, any suggestions, any advice for someone who may be starting their first biography? Oh, I would say read as many biographies as you can, even on people you don't like, or even on people that might be completely different from your subject. So I read uh, Robert Carroll's biography of Lyndon Johnson, all three volumes a lot, just because mm -hmm. the pacing of that piece. I read, of course, David Levering Lewis's work, but all of his earlier work too, that was not straight up biography, but was, you know, biographical. So just read as much as you can and get a feel for how people do it differently, but also do it well. That was Tufts University professor, Kerry Greenwich, author of Black Radical, The Life and Times of William Monroe Trotter. Greenwich's biography was published by Norton Liverite in November 2019. And this Zoom interview was recorded on June 28, 2021. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day.